You know how there are some ways of thinking that just come so naturally that no one even questions them? Or to paraphrase Albus Dumbledore, since that's the age of kids I have, the idea was completely obvious and so, naturally, completely wrong. I tweaked that a little bit. So for instance, here's an example. A long time ago, and for a very long time, pretty much everybody in Western Europe thought that life could just kind of pop up spontaneously from non-living things. We can blame Aristotle for this, because he looked around and saw that, yeah, some things obviously, are, um, life is generated by reproduction, but in other cases it looked like they just came out of nowhere. So clams obviously come from sand. And in puddles where there were no fish, boom, fish. So he thought, well, if there's enough like vital heat in the material, then it must just, boom, give rise to life. So that idea was, you know, so obviously observable that it stuck around for about 2,000 years. Just unquestioned assumptions. It wasn't until the late 17th century that somebody actually was like, I think I'll do the experiment. How about I like put some meat in a jar and seal it? And you know what? Like, no flies. No maggots either. Hey, wow. So that's when the theory first started to crumble. But even then, they didn't quite still understand how life might be transmitted or what was going on in that rotting meat until a powerful tool came on the scene to open up a whole new level of vision. See, about the same time, there was this guy, a Dutch fabric merchant, of all things, who started playing around with some lenses. And he got really good at grinding lenses and combining the lenses. And this is what he came up with. Um, I'll have him put up my image. See, you thought you were coming to church, but you get in a physics lesson. When Anthony van Leeuwenhoek, got that? put together these two lenses, he gave us the microscope. And the beauty of the microscope was this. You don't have to catch all this, just the two big ideas. You have the teeny tiny object over there, and when the light gets bent through the first lens, you get an image that appears to your eye that's a little bit bigger. That's the kind of shadowy pink one over there. But it's the fact that that image is placed just in the right distance to a second lens inside its focal length that gives the eye the impression that it's that big image right there. So that was his genius. And by doing, being pretty good at this, other people had played around with it, but his was better. Um, van Leeuwenhoek was able to achieve like 200 power magnification. And that opened up a whole new world. So he spent the next few decades taking his microscope and pointing it at things. And he was just the first one to describe this world literally like teeming with single-celled organisms. He described for us first algae, and then spermatozoa, and then bacteria. And every few years he would pop off another letter to the Royal Society telling them what he saw. And some people were like, no way, it was too cool. That double lens opened the human mind to understand that the world was wilder and more complex and also more interdependent and elegantly balanced than anyone had previously imagined. Well, in today's scripture, it also captures a moment in time when a small group of people first observed a phenomenon so new and so unexpected that it just forced them to see their world in a whole new way. 
Last week, we left off when we celebrated Easter with that story of the women first going to the tomb in the morning. And although there are little differences between the gospel accounts, all the resurrection accounts agree that the first response of all Jesus' followers was puzzlement or even fear. What is going on? Like the women come back and told the disciples what they heard, and the disciples are like, okay, you talking nonsense. So nothing really has changed. And today we're going to pick up at the end of chapter 24. We're going to pick up after having kind of passed over a little bit the story of the two disciples who were leaving town, confused and discouraged, and actually met Jesus on the road. If you're following along with the reframe course, you've heard that story of the road to Emmaus pretty recently, so you can have that in your memory. And if you're not doing that, I commend it to you for some bedtime reading. And astonishingly, these disciples, in the moment that they realize that's Jesus they're talking with, find that he sort of disappears from their sight. Like, what would you do next if this was a choose-your-own-adventure? That's where I'm going to pick up. And so it's on page 1061 in your pew Bible. And we're going to start just a little above the section heading because those aren't original. At verse 33, here's what they did. They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true. The Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. And then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost. He said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it, because of joy and amazement, he asked them, Do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them this is what was written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Lord, tonight as we study your word, open our minds so that we receive whatever you have for each of us. We ask you to meet us here. Help us to recognize you in the word proclaimed, in the hospitality of your table where you commune with us, in the community gathered, in the whisper of your spirit to each of our hearts. Um, 
explode our vision. Help us to see the scope and breadth of what you are doing in the world, the reality of your faithfulness, and your empowering of us with your spirit. Through Jesus' name, and in the power of the spirit. Amen. So the first thing that we want to know about this story is that it certainly seems to be a telescoped version of what happened in that room that night. I don't think anybody thinks this is really everything they said to each other. I mean, Jesus shows up, and I just saw him die on a cross a couple days ago. I got some questions. And I think Jesus would have answered those for them. But what Luke is giving us is the essence of their conversation, right? The stuff that he wants us to know, the big points. And the important stuff is Jesus has three big gifts for his friends. First, he gives them assurance about what this resurrection thing means. He gives them a new way of looking at the scriptures, and he gives them instructions on what to do next. Now, in each of these three cases, as I studied this, I found that Jesus was gently but firmly confronting a misunderstanding that the disciples were carrying. One of those views they'd held that, hey, up till now, just seemed totally natural and obvious, but which was fundamentally wrong. And as we look at each of those, I think that you'll see, too, how this encounter with the risen Jesus was like more revolutionary to the way they saw the world than if someone had walked up and handed them a microscope 17 centuries early. So the first one. The disciples' first natural, kind of ordinary belief is one that's betrayed by the way they respond to seeing Jesus alive. Like Maybe that morning when they got up, if you'd asked them, they wouldn't have told you that consciously they believed in ghosts. Maybe probably most of you wouldn't say that. But like in their moment of fear and surprise, with minds scrambling to make sense of what they're seeing, that is exactly the first thing that comes out of their mouth. Whoa, a ghost! I mean, that's even though when we started the reading, they're already talking about how the Lord has appeared to Simon. So you know this is one of those moments, maybe it's happened to you, where just the total shock and unexpectedness of a situation reveals your default belief that you wouldn't even have necessarily admitted that you had. And there's, there's some sense to the fact that that's where they go. Then, just like now, ghosts at least sort of existed in the popular imagination. There were kind of creepy stories that you could tell. Or even in Homer, the, the big heroes will talk with the shade of their departed loved one. Um, but then they're shadowy, they're insubstantial, such that when you go to give them a hug, you end up doing this huge awkward, like, ooh, and then they're gone, hugging the air. More importantly, I think at some level it's always seemed obvious to questioners and seekers that the human spirit must be something pretty different from the body. Like, we can see how the body returns to dust. We can watch that process. So obviously it must be the spirit that just flies away, and everybody has a different opinion. Like, maybe it's to the shadowy underworld, or maybe it just kind of hangs around its favorite spots on earth, or maybe it's united with the eternal world soul, but it's clearly insubstantial. So it's not a surprise if they thought they're seeing a, a pneuma, a spirit, but like dead people becoming fully alive again, that was not on the radar. That was completely mind-blowing, and maybe that's why 
Jesus, I love Jesus in this passage. He's so patient with their skepticism. It's okay. Go ahead, touch, see. He knows they don't even have a vocabulary for this. But this Jesus is not an apparition. They can see and hear him. They can touch. He can, like, interact with matter. Go ahead, touch me. Better yet, you got something to eat? And he eats the fish, and it does not, like, boom, fall through him and hit the floor. There's a real interaction that happens. If we think really strictly in terms of, well, there's spiritual and there's material, and these are totally separate categories, then this kind of a resurrection body that does not behave or follow the rules of physics is going to be an enigma. It's definitely not what we saw with Lazarus. It just had like an ordinary human body that Jesus miraculously set to working again, but it was still going to die someday. Now this is a little bit of a different category. This Jesus is surprisingly hard to recognize. More shockingly, he appears and disappears, whether the door is locked or not. This body is in a kind of glorified state that we've never seen in any other human being. And then at the same time, it's truly him. He says, it's mine, it's me, it's myself. And like we just sang, one of the most striking aspects of that resurrected body is the way that it bears. I think we can assume for eternity the marks of crucifixion. So that's why he says, see my hands and see my feet. I think John makes this even more clear. He's talking about the scars. So why does it matter? Why does this shake their way of seeing things? In what we read from 1 Corinthians, Paul tells us that Christ resurrected is like the first fruits, that early harvest that shows that things are growing and there's going to be more. Or we might say a deposit or a down payment on resurrection. Christ first and we follow. So it isn't like from the impetus of philosophical speculation that Jesus' followers started thinking about bodies and souls and their ultimate destiny in a whole new way. It was from like, the evidence of their senses that made them do that. So if, we're, if you keep reading a little further than we did in 1 Corinthians, you'd find that Paul is sort of wrestling to explain just how this works, tries to use a few analogies from nature. It's tricky, but it's clear that there is a, a real continuity and a discontinuity between the present creation and its ultimate fulfillment. So on the one hand, he's like, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, so it's not exactly me like I am right now. And on the other hand, there's real sameness. The body dies, and it's planted as a sort of seed from which the resurrection body grows. If anything, this story in Luke says that when Paul talks about like physical and spiritual bodies, we have to read Paul in the light of what Luke is telling us about what Jesus' resurrection spiritual body was like. We don't know exactly how it works. But if Jesus is our example, imagine with me for just a minute what that might mean. You know, people often think, well, in heaven I'll be, like, perfected, which I think is true. But what if it's not perfected, meaning that suddenly we all, like, are supermodels? We all suddenly 
shine forth the world's idea of physical beauty today. In fact, what if even in the new creation, we bear the scars of what we've experienced? Because our stories are that real and that significant, and God would dignify your story in that way. What if there could actually be scars that didn't carry pain once you understood better than I hope I do now, like what God was up to and how well he loved you through all that? What if that thing you kind of privately think has disfigured or blemished you, like maybe it's even inside, it's not visible to everybody right now. What if that becomes the mark of your testimony to how God heals you? and all that he takes you through. But that would be really cool, just saying. So we need to hold on to both the continuity and the discontinuity. And if we get that right, we'll avoid two extremes, both of which are damaging, because on the one hand, we might be tempted to overemphasize the continuity. Well, it looks like the kingdom of God, all that stands between us and the kingdom of God is kind of like progress. It's, it's all the same world. And that temptation takes us down a path where we exhaust ourselves trying to make it happen. And sometimes we even fall into this trap. It's, it's hard to understand, but people who want to bring in a, their like, wonderful society now sometimes turn to the cruelest methods. Now, I am absolutely not saying we shouldn't work for better policies or better education or health or justice. That's all good stuff. But at best, those can alleviate some of the effects of human sin. They just don't get to the root of the problem. Because as Jesus says, there needs to be repentance for shalom to flourish. And more often, probably today, Christians who think of themselves as biblical err on the other side, like total discontinuity. I gotta go pretty quickly through this because Chris has already taken us to some of this, this, this sense of the cosmic scope of what God's doing. But You'll still hear, like, oh, why bother if it's all going to burn? Well, and the irony there is that when we do that, we run up against, you know, the Bible itself. So it's the Bible that says we should pray for your kingdom to come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it's the Bible that says creation is going to be liberated from its bondage to decay. And that we await the redemption of our bodies. So I have to think that when God says, I'm making all things new... That's not exactly the same thing as to obliterate or throw in the trash. For good reason, Peter, first Peter calls God the faithful creator because he's not abandoning this creation. Is he called good and he's faithful to see it through and redeem it. So maybe you're feeling kind of stuck between these poles. Whoa, I don't want to become like too progressive and liberal and I don't want to become too all fly away to the moon. So where do I stand on this tightrope? Here's something that helped me, and maybe will help you. There's this rich little book called For the Life of the World uh, by Alexander Schmemann, an Orthodox theologian. And he says we don't need to buy into that opposition between spiritual and material. So the materialist, like atheist, just says, well, man is what he eats. And Schmemann says, okay, okay, that's, tr that's true, because we are created beings, like we're we're created to need to eat food and be dependent on the rest of creation. We have to do that for our sustenance. 
But we shouldn't think of that as this purely material and physical transaction because the real nature of the world is that the whole thing is really God's gift to us. So that when we have to partake of it, it's an act of communion with God. To quote just a smidgen from what he says, it is divine love made food, made life for man. And the unique position of man in the universe is that he alone is to bless God for the food and the life that he receives from him. What if we saw the world a little more that way? In that light, Jesus' action of eating with his disciples is a lot more than just a crude proof test of his real presence with them. It actually expresses again that he is the one who is incarnate and eats with them. He too will receive what he needs from God, giving thanks. As Paul was saying, in Adam, we all died. But in this new Adam, Christ, we all live. The second thing that Jesus has to set the disciples straight about, if they don't understand what kind of a creation it is that they inhabit, they also don't quite grasp what kind of story they are living in. After he eats, Jesus starts to explain to them that they shouldn't be shocked by the way things have happened. Because this suffering and death that he's just experienced were the fulfillment of the scriptures. Well, that was certainly a new way of seeing things. And no matter how many times Jesus had repeated that prediction on the way to the cross, because he had, they still didn't see it up until this point after the resurrection. I think it was probably easier for them to see the Bible stories they'd grown up with as a story about how much God cared about Israel. Like, God is on Israel's side, so the the day that they were looking forward to was the day when God would vindicate Israel and exalt Israel among the nations and punish Israel's enemies. In its narrowest form, that kind of understanding, we are the chosen people, could devolve too easily into the same old tribal mentality. There's us, and there's them. That's how the world neatly divides. And anyone who has that kind of mentality spends a lot of energy maintaining that boundary to make sure only the right people are in. But but nevertheless, it, it takes a lot of effort, and yet it seems to be where humans naturally go. It's kind of like, obvious to almost all cultures that you have a primary duty to the people in your own family and tribe, and the rest of those people can figure it out for themselves at best. Jesus insists instead that the story they're in is about God and what God is doing in the world. Like it's Israel that's called to come onto God's side. And the promise was always about God inviting Abraham and his descendants to be a source of blessing the whole world. Like our song that we did, from every nation, all of creation is going to bow. That was the vision. And then Jesus goes straight to the part that must have been the biggest sticking point to them. This is what was written, that the Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. So no one really expected that. The Messiah was going to conquer And it is a bit of a head-scratcher even now. You can go through the entire Old Testament, and you're never going to find that written out as a single sentence. It's never going to be that clear. So is this legitimate? Or is this just like 
Christians wishfully thinking and reading back in. Well, what happened is, in the light of the resurrection, the earliest Christians started to go back and reread the scriptures. And when they did, they started to see, wow, there's clues. Ooh, there's patterns. There's some archetypes. Ooh, there's promises. And it became quite overwhelming as he opened their minds to understand. So pretty soon they saw Jesus in both the Passover lamb and the atonement scapegoat. And they realized, oh, He's the seed of woman who crushes the serpent in Genesis. And he's also the suffering servant of Yahweh and Isaiah. And he's the ancient of days. He's the cornerstone that God lays in Zion. And he's the one who's cursed because he hangs on a tree. And, oh, he's also the anointed Davidic king we see in the Psalms. It was rich. It was just like picking up that double-lensed microscope. Now they're seeing the world not just through the story of God's faithfulness with Israel, but they're then looking at that through the light of their personal experience with the risen Christ. And that was a powerful combination that revealed whole new levels of understanding. When Fleming Rutledge reflects on this, she just says, it must have been such an exciting time. In our reading from Paul, in fact, we catch him in the act of doing this very thing. He's taking a verse from the 110th Psalm, and he's working out how to have a Christ-centered reading of it. It says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So Paul takes that, and to him it informs this epic vision of the destiny of all creation. So that he says, He must reign until he has put his enemies under his feet. And then the last enemy to be destroyed is death. The consistent result of developing that kind of a reading of the scriptures is that it breeds in us confidence that God is faithful. That's one of the things Luke most wants his audience to grasp. All the gospel writers make use of the Old Testament, Hebrew scriptures. But I think Luke is perhaps the most determined to show that Jesus does not discard but fulfills Israel's story. Just think back through some of the texts we've walked through this year. We've got Mary's song that I got to talk to you about in Advent, and Zacharias's song, and both of them specifically talk about God's promise to Abraham. Did that ever seem kind of weird to you, like non sequitur? But what Luke is doing is setting up that we will see how that promise isn't left just laying on the floor. It's actually going to be fulfilled. Or the way that Jesus initiates his ministry with his mission verse straight out of Isaiah. Or the way that during that ministry and on the way to Jerusalem, he explains to his disciples three separate times that these things must happen according to the scriptures. Jesus wants to reframe their understanding so they'll realize that Easter was not an accident. And it wasn't even just the inevitable confrontation that you would expect to happen when divine goodness runs up against human violence, especially the violence of the Roman Empire. There's something to that. God showed up on earth showing us how to be kind and merciful and just. What would we do? It is normally what we would do. But there's more than that. The confrontation was wholly within God's plan. It was that cup of the Father's will that he actively had to submit to himself. 
So as much as the disciples are initially offended by this notion, a suffering Messiah, later as they reflect, they found many ways in Scripture to see why that passion was necessary. Not just one. You may have heard people explain it with just one. This is why it was necessary, but there's like many. It was necessary for sacrifice to be made for sins, because without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. Or it was necessary so God, Christ could display the depth of God's love. Or it was necessary for him to show us the way that we should meet opposition and suffering with self-giving love and not violence. I like this one. Augustine wrestles with this question. Like, was that the only way God could have done it? Really? Was it the only way? Well, he discards that because God is too powerful, and so it couldn't be the only way, but it must have been the best way. Hmm, why? This is what he came up with. Christ had to defeat the powers of death by disarming them, not by using a display of power, because the devil loves power, but by his righteousness. And then that's how we, too, resist him by righteousness, and not through the exercise of power. Well, now that the disciples know what kind of a world and what kind of a story they are in, Jesus shows them what their role in the story is. I think we can suppose that up until this point, they just thought of themselves as disciples. So that's just students, like students of a rabbi. That was a pretty natural category for them to understand their relationship with Jesus. And it's part of what leaves them so disoriented after his death because to die in disgrace like that, it seemed to negate and invalidate whatever he taught them. So now they're really quite lost. But in this passage, Jesus gives them a whole new title. Witnesses. He says, you are, present tense, not you will be, but you are right now. You are witnesses of these things. You've been here. You saw it happen. A witness is inherently someone whose role looks both forward and back at the same time. Someone who saw what happened, but is prepared to speak into the future about it and testify. So now we see that Jesus' purpose, he had many disciples, right? There's more than 12 disciples. Many people are invited to follow him. His purpose in drawing this small circle close around him wasn't just to teach them, but also so they would see front row seats, the whole thing, his ministry, his death, and then his resurrection. This word witness in Greek is actually Martyros, martyr. So when you think that, you probably think, oh, like violent death by fire and sword and other creative tortures that the Romans could come up with, or people today in closed countries who give their lives. The fact that we think that word means that is due to this Christian habit of bearing witness right to the end at the cost of their own lives. That was their ultimate form of testimony. According to Christian tradition, more or less historical, some of them more than others, all of the 11 named in that passage died as martyrs in that sense. 
And that death, in a powerful way, sealed their witness to Christ, because who's going to die for a teaching that he knows to be false? The other word that will come to be used for that inner circle is apostles, or sent out ones. And clearly, Luke wants us to start looking forward into Acts, his part two of the story, where that's the role they will take on. But not quite yet. First, they get a curious instruction. Wait in the city. For this job, you are going to need something you don't yet possess. You're going to be clothed with power from on high. To be clothed with, biblical language for like taking on a power or a rule or a state that's not in your nature. So for Paul, for example, our mortality will be clothed with immortality. To use a different metaphor, the disciples are soon to be filled with the gift of the Spirit. So we aren't, it's true, witnesses in precisely the same sense as the apostles. They were the eyewitnesses, and that will never be replicated, the the direct recipients of Jesus' teaching. And so they've given us a tradition that it's our job to maintain faithfully. In another real sense, though, anyone who has encountered Jesus for themselves is genuinely a witness. You have a testimony of how God has worked in your life, whether it was a sudden conversion or a gradual and gentle wooing. That's your particular part of the story to cherish and to tell. And just likewise, that spirit, what Jesus calls literally the promise of my Father, is for us all. Luke goes out of his way to be clear about this. Way back in chapter 11, although I don't think we've actually gone there yet, that actually happens later in our, in our sequence. He says, if you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? That is definitely not a promise just for the apostles. He says, because everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. This is one more way that God proves to be a keeper of his promises. It's a change in his modus operandi, maybe, because in the Old Testament, he gave the Spirit to certain people on certain occasions and for certain tasks. But he did say through the prophet Joel, I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. And that's the text to which Peter goes when he tries to explain what's going to happen on that Pentecost day. Depending on your background, you might be squirming more or less at too much talk about the Spirit. For some people from a more formal tradition, it might make them think of odd behaviors or really extravagant claims. Definitely there's a necessity for discernment. Not everything that's claimed to be the Spirit of God is really. Here are a couple of yardsticks, though, that you can unfailingly rely on. One, the Spirit will always lift up the Son. That's his job. The Spirit glorifies Jesus. So when there's claims of a move of the Spirit, if something or someone other than Jesus is getting the glory, it's probably not the Holy Spirit of God. 
The second is the Spirit will bring about unity in the body. Do not mistake that for its counterfeit, which is uniformity. You can get uniformity through bullying and manipulation and constraint. But where you really see unity of heart and purpose among people who are otherwise diverse, the Spirit is moving. And I really think we see that here at Leonard Streets. We come with a lot of different perspectives and backgrounds and baggage, but God is drawing us into one body. And third, the Spirit will help us grow in Christ-likeness. That may not be flashy and loud, but if you struggled with sin, you know it's probably his most powerful work. So if you long to know God better, or to resist sin, or you need some chains broken, or comfort, or transformation, you're invited to invite the Spirit to fill you. How does that work? It's a mystery, but we're supposed to ask. And then we just start walking with him, which is like take a step, and another step, and just consciously try to rely on him. It is the Spirit who makes disciples into witnesses, and bodies into temples, and strangers into the family of God. So here are three things that together with the disciples, we too can understand, that Luke wants us to understand from this resurrected Jesus. We know that we are living in God's world, which he has not abandoned. So absolutely everything before you is material for returning thanks and blessing God. The food you're going to go eat tonight, the clothes on your back, the shelter over our heads, the laughter of a child, the excessive energy of a child, the health that walks you out the door, the sleep you'll enjoy when your head hits the pillow. There is no sacred thing and no secular that's outside of God's purview. All of it we are invited to offer back with blessing and thanks. We know that we're in the story where God fulfills his promises, defeats death, sends out good news, not to just one favored nation, but with the intention of reaching all people, and then ultimately brings all things under his rule and reign. And we know that we are in the story as witnesses, empowered and led by the Spirit, restoring God's image in us. So I've just scratched the surface here, right? You may think, oh, that was long, but that's just the beginning of how your world will change. But take this, and like Leeuwenhoek with his microscope, you can spend the rest of your lifetime looking at things through it. Just look at everything around you and ask, through the lens of the story and through the lens of the resurrected Jesus, what's out there? What does the world look like? Thank you, Lord. Thanks for blowing our minds open. Thanks for being so faithful to us. Thank you for meeting us again today. And thank you for leaving us your spirit. Amen.